I am profoundly lucky uh, because my diagnosis was by luck. Lung cancer. It's a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. The treatments for lung cancer have changed so much in the past few years that it's almost hard to imagine what it was like 5, 10, even 15 years ago. That's right. Despite all the advances in diagnosis and treatment for other types of cancer, treatment for lung cancer hadn't changed in decades. The options were basically chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and the prognosis was usually not very positive. That was then, thank goodness. Now there are better tools for diagnosing lung cancer earlier and so many more tools for treating it. So today on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast, we're talking to LCFA co-founder and lung cancer survivor David Sturgis about how early diagnosis saved his life. And we'll chat with the amazing UCLA thoracic radiologist, Dr. Denny Aberly, about her work to help establish the guidelines for who should get lung cancer screening. And I'm really excited because we get to talk to LCFA young investigator Kelly Smith about her work to develop a new type of treatment that could help lung cancer patients in the future. One of the things we love so much about working with the incredible people on the LCFA Speakers Bureau is that we get to know so many statistical outliers. That means the people living with lung cancer years, even decades after diagnosis. And that is certainly the case with our next guest. He was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2002 quite by accident. It turned out to be a very lucky catch for David and also for LCFA itself. But we are getting ahead of the story. That's right. Let's hear David tell the story himself. Uh, David Sturgis, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm delighted to be here. So your story is somewhat unusual. You're a a 14-year survivor. Is it 14? Am I wrong? Well, I'm happy to tell you that you are wrong, Sarah, that it it is actually 18 years since my first diagnosis. You are correct. I had a had a more recent diagnosis three or four years ago, but I like to take it all the way back because it's 18 total. 18 years. That is, that is absolutely astounding. And I think that just shows the change in lung cancer treatment and diagnosis. And we're going to get into that. But, but David, you have an unusual story um, in how your lung cancer was first discovered. What is that story? You are correct. It is unusual. And uh, I am profoundly lucky because my diagnosis was by luck. I was uh, in uh, being seen, excuse me, for a routine uh, cardiac uh, review. And they suggested that I have a high speed CAT scan, which is a way of identifying the buildup of calcium, what have you, in the um, uh, uh, bloodstream. 
And I had that and it came back. Basically, the numbers were normal or within normal range, uh, which I felt very good about. And I set the report down. It came directly to my house, uh, was not given to me by my doctor. And later I thought, well, I'm going to read about this more. And literally there was a footnote on this report that said we've identified a nodule on the lower right lobe of the patient's uh, uh, lung. And this may be something that has been there and is being watched, or it might be something that has not been identified before. And if so, we suggest that he seek further examination, which I did. I called my uh, cardiologist and he said, well, let's get you in and um, let's do a biopsy. David, can I interrupt you for just one second? I, as I remember, you were super healthy, mm-hmm. super athletic. And had just jumped out of a plane. Is that and right? Climbed Kilimanjaro. The plane. The plane came later after oh. <laughs> after surgery. Um, um, but prior to my diagnosis, um, about a year before, I had run the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon, and maybe a year and a half before, um, uh, I and a friend had climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. So, it. I wasn't, if I can say it. I hope not the typical camel straight uh, smoker who was wheezing and surprise, surprise. Um, it was something that I never would have thought would happen to me, even though I had been a smoker. Wow. So this, the, the diagnosis itself must have come out of the blue. It did. It, it, it was an absolute shock. Um, Uh, I remember during the course of the biopsy and the doctor said to me, David, there are live cells here. And I was in a daze and I said, what do you mean live cells? He said, it means it's malignant. It means you have lung cancer. And um, that was it. He said, you're going to have to contact your cardiologist who will set you up with others. But that was... That was what he told me, and he was done for the day, which was another thing. I was, I was left hanging in limbo wow. uh, with, with this diagnosis, really not knowing, not clearly not even having a clue, well, what is the treatment? And in my mind's eye, at that point in my life, and also all of the scientific advancements and cancer treatments that I had read about for other cancers, I thought, well, this will be kind of an easy road. It'll be easy, quick, and I will uh, be done with it. Um, I found out something quite different as I went forward and was told the only treatment therapy I had available to me was uh, surgery, that there was no other therapy available for an individual in my situation. And quite frankly, that is still the situation for an early stage lung cancer diagnosis, which in many respects is a good thing, too, that they feel that surgery is the best approach in that case uh, to hopefully then prevent a recurrence. And you were diagnosed again very early, um, a couple of years ago, a handful of years ago, and you call that um, diagnosis plain dumb luck as well, like the first one, but but things have changed so much in between your first diagnosis and your second diagnosis. Can you talk about what has changed in part due to some of the work that you've done in the interim? I think that 
for many lung cancer patients, maybe not me particularly, many things have changed in terms of a diagnosis and the the possibility of early diagnoses, which we have developed. Uh, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial is a prime example, which which identified finally and said, yes, high-speed CAT scans of the lung um, uh, will identify lung cancers quicker than an X-ray. An X-ray prior to that time was the standard of treatment. Uh, so yes, it was a very exciting from a point of view of even though I was getting CAT scans, this was and everything pointed to this is the correct treatment that you should or observation that you should be having. And uh, it did. It once again identified another nodule at a very early stage. And again, the treatment was surgery. But I think the other part of it, too, of that equation is that even though the type of surgery I had the second time, which is called VATS, Video Assisted Thoracic Surgery, had been around when I first had surgery, um, it has been so developed in the meantime the amount of time that I was in the hospital was reduced. I have two small, maybe one inch scars where they went in to remove that uh, that malignancy as opposed to my first surgery where I have a very, very long uh, uh, and <laughs> very vivid scar yet where they went in and literally opened my chest and went in through my ribs to access the, uh, the lung. What a difference from, from the first surgery to the second and from the first diagnosis to the second. Yes, and, what was, and the time in the hospital was greatly reduced. Uh, and I was home, I was, I was walking, I've told the story, I think I had been out of surgery and home a total of maybe eight days and I was going out for a walk and my surgeon called me saying, I'm checking to see how you're doing. And I said, I'm on my way for a walk. She said, perfect. It's the way it should be. That is the way it should be. But one of the things that is not the way it should be is how much money goes into lung cancer research about how much research is actually being done based on the number of lives that could be saved with lung cancer. And you're one of the leaders in lung cancer advocacy, and you've helped create Lung Cancer Foundation of America. I'd love to know how that came about and what motivated you and what keeps you going. What keeps me going, I'll start with the latter uh, question first, is the fact that I and everybody else at LCFA think that we are helping uh, not only those individuals diagnosed with lung cancer, but their families as well by virtue of the phenomenal research that we are sponsoring through the foundation. And when we started, that was what we recognized from our point of view that we felt was missing is an organization that was solely intent upon and directed its attentions to research. And this isn't taking away from any other organization. They do fabulous work, but we figured we need this singular approach and we hope by way of that singular approach, we would provide a phenomenal benefit to lung cancer patients and their families. And I think that that is working. And it also was helping to step in to help amp up 
the funding that is necessary and called for for lung cancer research, but is whole, I shouldn't say wholly lacking, but is very, very diminished when you compare it to research monies that are applied towards other cancers. And in that vein and against that backdrop, we have to continually remember and focus on the fact that lung cancer does remain the biggest cancer death, not only in the United States, but in the world for both men and women. And this all started with a call coming from out of the blue. Is that right? It did. It was my then treating oncologist uh, who was at UCLA and he was connected and one of the researchers on the NIH National Institute of Health or program and SPOR is I think an awful acronym, but nonetheless, it means uh, uh, specialized programs of research excellence. And he asked myself, as, and I found out later in another tele separate telephone call to Kim Norris, one of the co-founders, would you be interested in being a patient advocate for our SPORE at UCLA? And quite frankly, I didn't even hesitate. Um, I said yes and then asked, what does it involve and what does it entail? And he said, just about anything you want. And Kim and I took it from there and met Lori Monroe, who was the third co-founder of LCFA. And at that point, Lori was already a patient advocate for a Vanderbilt spore. So we had a somewhat common background in terms of what we felt was important and necessary for the lung cancer community, though we were coming at it from slightly different approaches. Our first venture out was we were going to crack Capitol Hill and we were going to get lots of government money. We had a wonderful reception and then all the times we went to Capitol Hill, but the money, the, the funding, was not there in terms of anything greater than that was already there. And we said, we think we can do it better in terms of forming our own nonprofit, which we did. And as I say, with the singular focus of funding the innovative lung cancer research. And your work with NIH has continued. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, I've had two go-rounds, if you will, with NIH. I was on. I was the, the patient advocate on the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. So coming from my point of view of uh, my lung cancer having been diagnosed by way of a CAT scan early on, I found it particularly interesting and particularly important research. And now I sit on the Department of Defense Lung Cancer Research Program. The Department of Defense provides funding for uh, research for basically all cancers, uh, leukemia, breast cancer, so on and so forth. But I sit on the uh, lung cancer one, not surprisingly, and it too is fascinating and interesting. And particularly from the point of view, it kind of mimics or mirrors what we do at LCFA. Its singular focus is here's the research and what research is out there that's going to crack the code with respect to possibly a cure, but also uh, new treatment uh, methods that may help turn lung cancer into just another illness, if you will, that uh, has to be watched. 
And part of what we're doing in this podcast is talking to other lung cancer advocates who have similar stories to yours, who have gotten into advocacy um, on behalf of more research funding and clinical trials and how clinical trials uh, treat patients. And we're also talking to Denny Aberly, who uh, is a friend of yours uh, and and also worked on, on your case as well. Yes, absolutely. And it was Denny Aberly that invited me to be on the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial as a patient advocate. And um, that's how I became acquainted with her. And she has done phenomenal research and is extremely active in terms of uh, or the early diagnosis of lung cancer, and added to that her ability to explain the disease, what is out there for treatment, what might happen, what might not happen in terms of the evolution of treatment modalities better than anyone I know. And uh, beyond being a personal friend, I mean, anybody, any advocate's friend uh, from the point of view of of what she can give to an advocate in terms of lung cancer research and treatment for lung cancer. We should probably say it's Dr. Debbie Averly. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and she is probably one of the leading lung cancer researchers um, and a radiologist at, the, at UCLA. UCLA. Yeah, so... I just wanted to make sure because we all know her so well. We I know just we like... get to call her Jenny Averly, but but it is Doctor. It Averly. is Doctor. Yes. <laughs> say it with a say it with a certain amount of reverence. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's um, just really astounding to be talking to someone who has 18 years out from diagnosis and who has done as much as you have. Um, to bring attention to lung cancer and the need for funding and the need for research. If I could say one more thing in terms of, uh, of becoming a lung cancer advocate, I thought about it many times and I can repeat for you how it happened, but I can very honestly say and have said it to many people, even if I had never been diagnosed with lung cancer, if someone had come to me, let's say Kim Norris, you guys, and said, this is the background, this is what's happening, this is what isn't happening, this is why we need help, I think I can honestly say I would have still jumped into the fray. I think it's that important. It is that important, but it also says so much about you, and we're just honored to have you, and I think all of us count ourselves lucky that there are people like you out there who see a need and fill it and, and do everything possible to make life better. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. And thank you for what uh, the two of you are doing. Well, we're having fun doing it. <laughs> we are. So. We have a good time. <laughs> That's the important part. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying the LCFA Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. It's produced as part of our nonprofit mission, the support and expansion of lung cancer research accomplished by raising funds that serve to increase the public's awareness of lung cancer status as the leading cause of cancer death, inform and educate lung cancer patients in their lung cancer journey, and fund innovative lung cancer research.
I have had the pleasure of working with Dr. Denny Aberly a number of times, and she's a great friend of LCFA's and a tireless advocate for early diagnosis and screening for lung cancer. She's a radiologist specializing in lung cancer at UCLA's Cancer Center, and she was on the team that developed the guidelines for who should be screened. And this is something I love about the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. We're talking with some of the top doctors around the country and sometimes around the world, and it's amazing to get this kind of incredible access. Oftentimes, like in this interview with Dr. Aberly, we're grabbing 15 minutes with them in between their dozens of appointments and meetings and a really, really busy day. So you're going to hear Dr. Aberly's very busy computer pinging her with messages and lots of activities. And it really gives you the sense of how hard these doctors are working in the fight against lung cancer. Oh, and by the way, Dr. Aberly references a set of guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. You can find those guidelines in an easy-to-use calculator on LCFA's website in the About Lung Cancer tab where it says Detection. That's kind of a lot. So you're going to go to the website, About Lung Cancer, and then hit Detection. We'll put a link to that tab in the story notes of this podcast. But let's jump right into the conversation with Dr. Aberly, who's been specializing in lung cancer for about 25 years. I was intimately involved with the one major uh, screening trial that looked at the benefits of low-dose computed tomography or low-dose CT screening for patients who were at risk of lung cancer based on age or smoking. Um, After the results of that trial were published, uh, I've been involved in uh, the national scene to try to help with the implementation of screening, to help with guidelines for how to interpret screens, and for developing the database into which screening exams are submitted to the um, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services uh, in order to be considered for reimbursement. So from your perspective, um, one of the things that we just talked about at the LCFA patient advocate meeting last weekend was how quickly and how hugely things have changed in the treatment, the diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer, um, really in the past maybe five to seven years. But given your perspective, how, how have things changed um, in the time that you've been specializing in lung cancer? So lung cancer is really a continuum. I tend to work on the early side, meaning the early detection of lung cancer. Um, And so, but but there's also the later side in patients who have established lung cancer or may have advanced disease. And there've really been uh, major advances across the continuum of lung cancer. In the area of early detection, and by that I mean patients who are typically pre-symptomatic. They they do not have signs or symptoms of lung cancer, but their cancers may be caught early. Um, We like to think of early detection as also early stage, but that is not always the case. But in the the early stages uh, of lung cancer, probably the major um, benefit that we've seen over the last couple of decades is the fact that we now have a screening test for early lung cancer detection, and that is low-dose computed tomography. 
uh, a couple of trials, one in the United States and one in Europe, have both confirmed that the use of CT for screening reduces the mortality of lung cancer by at least 20% and in some instances much more than that. So that means that we have the potential to identify a cancer before someone becomes symptomatic and to um, cure it within, with, or to treat it with intent to cure. That's a, a major uh, advance because it means that more patients are being diagnosed in the earlier stages when they have the potential for long-term cure. On the advanced Side. In patients who have established lung cancer and may have um, metastatic disease or more um, significant regional disease in the chest, we also now have a variety of therapies that can be used to prolong life. Um, and many of these are what we call targeted therapies. They are therapies that were developed to address one particular gene mutation that a patient may have, and they allow that tumor to be held in check. Um, there are times when resistance may develop and the therapy no longer works, but we have additional therapies that may be effective. And these therapies are not what we call the classical cytotoxic therapies, um, meaning that they they kill all cells. They're really directed to the tumor. Although they have side effects, the side effects are generally less than in patients who are receiving traditional chemotherapy. And then finally, the newest thing uh, in our inventory to manage lung cancer are immunotherapies, in which we're able to give drugs that stimulate the immune system to recognize a lung cancer as foreign and to attack it. And I think across this continuum, we're seeing substantial improvements in the way we diagnose, treat, and cure lung cancer. So I, I want to step back just a little bit. When you are talking about CT scans to diagnose early stage lung cancer, this is something that David talked about. He was uh, his his lung cancer was found on a scan for a totally unrelated thing. It was a cardiac issue. So when you are talking about asymptomatic people, people who are showing no symptoms, how would they access a CT scan? I mean, is it really by luck? Well, interesting that you that you suggest that. Prior to screening, most of the lung cancers that were detected in patients who had no signs or symptoms were, in fact, incidental findings with the scan having been acquired for another purpose. Um, now that we have low radiation dose CT screening, we're able now to identify eligible patients who are at higher risk for lung cancer based on age and smoking history and to offer them screening, which currently in the United States, if you're eligible, Third-party payers must uh, cover the cost of the screening exam, as does Medicare. So that is for folks who fall into those screening guidelines. Yes. But it sounds like still, uh, and I'm thinking of the number of members that we have on the Speakers Bureau who did not fit that criteria and were not diagnosed until stage three or stage four. 
What um, can you talk about the benefit to being diagnosed earlier? You mentioned a couple minutes ago um, that early diagnosis and early stage are not the same thing. Correct. We would love to think that it could be, but even in the setting of screening, not all cancers that are detected, even in patients who lack signs or symptoms, will be early stage. They may be more advanced stage. What screening does is shift the stage um, across a population to earlier stages that are more amenable to cure. But unfortunately, not everyone who undergoes screening and is diagnosed with a lung cancer will have an early stage lung cancer. And in early stage, you're talking about um, a couple of different options. I mean, we've, you've mentioned targeted therapies for a specific biomarker and immunotherapy, um, which we're going to get into in the next part of this podcast, one um, particular study that is happening. But in earlier stages, there's also the possibility of a surgical approach. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. In fact, most immunotherapies and targeted therapies are applied to patients with established cancer that may not be locally resectable. There are clinical trials looking at the benefits, particularly of immunotherapy, prior to surgical resection. But far and away, um, in patients with early stage lung cancer, what that really means is that the tumor is localized, hopefully, to the primary lesion within the lung uh, and less, uh, less so even to regional lymph nodes. So it's very localized disease. Those patients are optimally managed with surgical resection. There are other ways to locally manage early stage lung cancer. You can do radiotherapy in which you target the primary mass with radiation therapy. There are also ways in which you can ablate the lesion percutaneously using uh, heat or thermal methods. For example, radiofrequency ablation, microwave ablation, and cryoablation. And there are different times or different reasons why you might use one over the other. Those are usually done by an interventional thoracic radiologist and the, uh, an instrument is passed from the skin into the lesion to ablate the lesion. With radiation therapy, you typically are just receiving very high dose radiation to a very restricted area. But those, those are all ways in which the local cancers can be managed or treated for potential cure. Sure. And just to make sure that we're, um, that I'm understanding everything, an ablation is where you are actually destroying that tumor tissue. Is that correct? Exactly right. A probe goes into the mass and heat or cold are applied, which destroys those cells, leaves a residual mass, but destroys the cancer cells themselves. Okay. So, this is this is kind of a question from the perspective of someone who is asymptomatic. What should someone who's worried about the possibility of having lung cancer say? What should they go talk to their doctor about to see if they're eligible for a CT scan? How do you bring that up with your doctor? Okay, so first of all, as a matter of health policy in the United States right now, the, there are well-defined eligibility criteria for screening. 
you must be between the ages of 55 to 77 or up to 80 if you have private insurance. You must have had a minimum moderate degree uh, or uh, extent of smoking. And if you are a former smoker, you must have quit within 15 years. Those criteria, there's nothing magic about them. They were the criteria that were originally used in the United States National Lung Screening Trial that I was associated with. Those criteria were designed uh, based on kind of epidemiology to identify those people at highest risk of lung cancer. But I must say they were never intended to be implemented for public policy decisions. Right now, because the NLST was at that time the only trial, those eligibility criteria for this randomized clinical trial were adopted as public policy. The United States Preventive Services Task Force is currently reevaluating the data to determine whether or not different decisions about eligibility should be entertained. But right now, you really can only get a lung cancer screen that is covered by your insurance or Medicare if you satisfy those eligibility criteria. Mm -hmm. So what about the patients who have a lesser uh, intensity of smoking or who quit more than 15 years ago? Those patients are technically not eligible and depending upon their insurance, they may or may not be reimbursed for their screen, which means that they would have to pay out of pocket. That's a decision that that person must make. What about the never smoker? We've looked at never smokers and the possibility of screening them, and it's technically really not feasible from a, from a national economic perspective. Moreover, it would subject people to although low dose, still typically unnecessary radiation, which we don't want to do. So we don't have a good answer for individuals who are never smokers, but we do know that there are a number of other risk factors that influence one's risk of lung cancer. One of them is family history. If you have a family history of lung cancer, particularly in your immediate family, but also in your more extended family, you are at higher risk of developing lung cancer. If you are exposed to certain known carcinogens, for example, radon, which is a natural radioactive gas that occurs within the, the, the earth, the ground, uh, some areas of the United States have more radon than other areas, but known moderate radon exposure will make you predisposed to lung cancer. If you have underlying chronic obstructive lung disease, that is an additional risk factor. And it would appear that some racial groups are at higher risk even if they smoke less and those are in particular African-American men. So in individuals who are afraid that they may be at higher risk of lung cancer because of risk factors other than smoking, 
They can address this with their primary care physician or their pulmonologist and make a decision about whether or not screening is right for them, understanding that they may have to pay for that screening exam. And this is really part of the story that we hear from so many folks on the LCFA Speakers Bureau is there's a certain amount of self-advocacy that you need to be prepared to, you know, embark on if you are looking for a diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I can count on two hands the number of stories of uh, misdiagnosis that we have with, um, in particular, young non-smoking female lung cancer patients, but but really kind of everyone. So I think it, it's important for, for patients to hear the message that certain, sometimes you just have to be dogged in your pursuit of the accurate diagnosis. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are exactly right. And I think that that the incidence of lung cancer in never smokers, in people who have never smoked a cigarette, is increasing for reasons that we don't understand. You know, we don't know if it's pollution or something that is, you know, that is within the atmosphere. But definitely this is on the rise over the last 10 years or so, and we desperately need ways to identify those patients who are at risk, even absent tobacco smoke. Mm-hmm. And you have talked um, before about some new potential ways to diagnose lung cancer. And I understand that not all of these are sort of being used currently, but what are some of the things coming down the pike, hopefully, uh, potential new tools like a liquid biopsy, which is just a bit of blood, you know, like a, a blood test? You know, what are the things coming down the pike, hopefully, that will make diagnosis easier? Well, so currently liquid biopsy is a reality, but it's more of a reality in the established or advanced lung cancer setting. And specifically, patients who have a single driver gene mutation, which means the mutation that is driving that lung cancer to continue to proliferate, uh, will undergo targeted therapies. At some point, we have to begin looking for additional mutations that may cause the tumor to become resistant to the targeted therapies. So even now, we're doing blood tests in patients who are put on certain targeted therapies to look for additional mutations that we now recognize lead to resistance. And we do that through a blood test, and it is relatively accurate. We're heading in the same direction in the early setting of lung cancer, and we use a variety of different specimens. They can be blood specimens. They can be saliva. They can be sputum that you cough up from the lungs. They can even be brushings from inside the nostrils. So a variety of different readily accessible biospecimens are being analyzed, and we're looking at patterns of gene mutations. So there are a number of different ways to look for evidence of um, risk factors molecularly that would cause lung cancer. Very few of them have made it to the commercial stage at this point, but I think that's just a matter of time. And I think once that happens, then we're talking about 
a new era in being able to identify smokers or non-smokers who may have or be at risk of lung cancer. That would really be an amazing step forward. So now it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, that we're that these additional diagnosis methods would take us out of the um, kind of closed loop of who's eligible for screening um, and into something that's more accessible for more patients, potentially identifying um, folks who do not fit that those high risk uh, factors. Um, and identifying them earlier. Yeah, I think that's one of the hopes. Um, I think we have a ways to go yet, but that's certainly a direction that we would like to uh, uh, to go. Well, I think it's just important to know that there are ways to detect lung cancer when it's localized in its earlier stages. Uh, that if you are a current or former smoker, you should discuss that with your primary care physician. If you are a never smoker, but you've had family members or certain exposures to respiratory carcinogens, that might be worth a conversation with your primary care physician also. And also to understand that even though not all screen-detected lung cancers are early stage, they, they early stage will dominate uh, screen-detected lung cancers, and even patients with established or advanced lung cancers can now look forward to treatments that were not even here 15 years ago. What an amazing set of information you've given us. I really, really appreciate it. And Dr. Aberly, I really appreciate the time that you've taken today. I know your schedule is just absolutely chock full from dusk to dawn, so we appreciate the time. My pleasure. Isn't that an amazing thing to hear? The idea that we could be looking at completely new, much more advanced ways to diagnose and treat lung cancer in the near future. Oh my gosh, yes. It's one of the reasons we are so excited to work on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. And coming up next, one of our favorite people. She really is. LCFA Young Investigator Kelly Smith talks about research she's working on that may make surgically treating lung cancer easier and more effective. Want more with Hope With Answers? Visit us online at lcfamerica.org, where you can find out more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You might not know this, but Lung Cancer Foundation of America's mission is to fund early stage research, the kind of smaller scale studies that can lead to much larger grants because lung cancer is really underfunded. Incredibly underfunded, especially at the federal level. And that's really the front line of lung cancer research, getting enough promising data to go after bigger grants for very expensive trials, clinical trials, and larger studies that can lead to better treatments or diagnoses. And one person on the front lines of research is Dr. Kelly Smith of Johns Hopkins, an LCFA young investigator, and she just wrapped up a grant that looks at the benefits of a particular type of chemotherapy before surgery. In the first uh, LCFA grant that I was fortunate enough to be awarded, we were already planning to do a clinical trial of neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 in resectable non-small cell lung cancer. And I wonder, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I wonder if you could 
help us walk through all of those terms really quickly? Sure. Um, so neoadjuvant treatment is when um, there's a therapy given, uh, traditionally chemotherapy, prior to patients undergoing surgery. So this is in patients who are eligible for surgery, so earlier stage disease, not metastatic. Um, and traditionally, it's chemotherapy that they're given. And the goal of that is to uh, shrink the tumor prior to them going to surgery. So it makes the job of getting all the tumor out a little bit easier. Um, and the idea uh, behind switching up that treatment regimen is that um, immunotherapy, uh, specifically anti-PD-1, has shown impressive results in patients with metastatic disease. So we thought that giving uh, immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting might not only help to reduce the tumor prior to surgery, but might also help prevent relapse in patients. And as you know, 50 to 70% of patients who undergo surgery for lung cancer will eventually relapse and die of the disease. So we really want to prevent that relapse. Um, so we performed the first ever clinical trial of neoadjuvant um, checkpoint blockade in resectable non-small cell lung cancer. And um, aside from the impressive clinical findings, there was a 45% major pathologic response rate, which is amazing. Um, aside from that, we were able to do a lot of uh, scientific correlative studies on the specimens that we obtained from patients who are enrolled to this clinical trial um, due to the funding that I received from LCFA. And uh, several papers have been published based on the work from LCFA. Um, so the first paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that was the clinical trial. Uh, and what we saw um, was that for the first time, we were able to identify anti-tumor T-cell responses in patients with early stage disease. So these were patients who were treated. So we, you know, the treatment might have had an effect on our ability to detect these T cells, but this had never been done before. Um, no one had ever identified anti-tumor T cells in, in the peripheral blood of patients who have such an early stage of disease. And the LCFA was, funded this work. The next really cool finding, um, and we published this at the end of 2019, was that not only do you have these anti-tumor T cells, but what this treatment did in these patients was it actually mobilized T cells from the blood into the tumor. Um, so it wasn't necessarily acting on cells that were already in the tumor, but it was causing a systemic effect that resulted in this migration of cells into the tumor where they could kill cancer cells. And the third really exciting thing was that in October, because of the LCFA funded work, I was able to generate enough data to submit my first R01 application. And that goes to study section in about six weeks. So hopefully the LCFA funded work will lead to uh, $1.25 million of funding if, you know, if my R01 is funded. What you hear so clearly in the conversation with Kelly is just how important LCFA's young investigator funding is to getting that all-important first chunk of data that can lead to larger grants. For her, it may lead to an additional $1.2 million in funding for an even larger grant. These young investigator grants are really the foundation of everything LCFA does. Yes. And 
It's also true that Kelly and I get a little bit techy in our conversations. We've talked about this before. We have talked. (laughs) I get chatty with these people because I enjoy these conversations so much. So her grant established that immunotherapy, a medicine that helps the body's own defense system fight the cancer, was effective against the lung cancer tumor. It helped shrink the tumor to make it easier to remove surgically. And this is incredible. It showed some evidence of preventing a recurrence of lung cancer. This is work that is happening right now, today, and it will hopefully impact the lives of so many people living with lung cancer in the future. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Through the generosity of donors like you, LCFA is able to fund cutting-edge research that will lead to new treatments and protocols with the goal of greater survival rates for lung cancer patients everywhere. We can't do it without you. Consider making a donation by visiting lcfamerica.org and clicking on the Donate button. Well, Sarah, another packed podcast today. You got it. Our thanks to our guests, LCFA co-founder David Sturgis, who shared his experience of living with lung cancer, thoracic radiologist Dr. Denny Aberly, and LCFA young investigator Dr. Kelly Smith. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast is produced by the Lung Cancer Foundation of America. Find more information online at lcfamerica.org. Thanks for listening.